everybody. I'm Ashwin. I'm Raj. And I'm Eddie. This is Blood Cancer Talks. This is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical development. Today, we are excited to talk about management of FLT3 positive AML. We have an expert, Dr. Alexander Pearl, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your time. Before we can start, can you tell us about yourself your, and your clinical and research focus for our listeners? So I've been at uh, Penn for about 20 years now. Uh, I did my uh, medical school prior to that at Mount Sinai, residency training at UCSF fellowship at Johns Hopkins, and that's where I first got interested in the topic of FLT3 mutated AML and targeting FLT3. Uh, I had worked there with uh, Don Small, who was the person who first cloned the FLT3 uh, gene, and closely with Mark Levis, who was developing uh, clinical trials with drugs um, targeting this uh, receptor tyrosine kinase. So, you know, as a fellow, I was actually, uh, you know, on the leukemia service when some of the first patients were treated with FLT3 inhibitors, and it was a really exciting time. This was, you know, within very short order of the uh, first approval of, of imatinib, uh, Gleevec for CML. And so suddenly our, our field was really transported into the molecularly targeted era, um, and it really opened up the idea of finding the same kinds of targets in different kinds of malignancies um, and just, you know, figuring out which were the drugs that were active against the targets, validating the targets, and trying to improve therapy for patients. Um, and then when I moved from uh, from Baltimore to Philadelphia, uh, I took those interests with me and have developed that over the years. I've uh, been involved with a number of early phase trials of a number of FLT3 inhibitors. Some went nowhere, some went all the way. Um, and that's been an exciting ride over the last uh, 20 years. But I, I, I don't think we're done trying to improve therapy for patients with FLT3 mutated AML. We certainly are doing a lot better than we were 20 years ago, but we've got a ways to go. But it still is exciting, and I think we're still you know, making important strides. Fantastic. Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Pearl. So let us jump right in. We'll start with the case, and you can walk us through how you would approach this patient, and we can discuss the data as we go. So this is a 55-year-old man with a history of hypertension, coronary artery disease and hypothyroidism, presented with fatigue and dyspnea on exertion. A complete blood count at presentation showed a white count of 100,000 and a hemoglobin of 10.5 and a platelet count of 42,000. After initial management of the suspected acute leukemia, he underwent a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy which showed a hypercellular marrow with greater than 90% cellulitic consisting of myeloblast, which showed an abnormal immunophenotype by flow cytometry. Cytogenetics showed normal male karyotype, and the myeloid NGS panel was done, which showed FLT3 ITD at a variant allele frequency of 36%, and an IDH1 mutation at R132 at a variant allele frequency of 48% as well as the presence of NPM1 mutation at the variant frequency of 29%. So in a patient like this, you see in the, in, in the hospital, how do you approach this case of a new diagnosis of 
flip three positive AML. Can you please walk us through your thought process and how you approach a patient like that? I think this is a very typical presentation of this disease. Uh, a number of things here point to, you know, the, the presence of a FLT3 ITD, even if you didn't know the genetics. First off, uh, it's occurring in a middle-aged person. Uh, these mutations are more common in, you know, younger aged group than older age group, though they can occur at any age. They're commonly associated with high white blood cell counts, uh, high blast percents, both in the blood and the bone marrow. Um, so seeing a you know presentation with hyperleukocytosis, 90% of the marrow uh, are myeloblasts, that's very typical. Um, and also genetically, uh, FLT3 mutations commonly occur in combination with certain other mutations. They're pretty rare in combination with um, TP53 mutations uh, or complex karyotype. More commonly, we see them with diploid karyotype or normal karyotype. And they often are associated with NPM1 mutation. Um, and so they, in general, make the uh, otherwise very favorable prognosis of NPM1 worse. Um, and it's been debated just how much worse, and that also can be genetically uh, context-driven. Um, in combination with an IDH1 mutation, I would say this falls currently into the ELN intermediate risk category. Uh, the prior iteration looked at the allele burden of FLT3 ITD, which you can't actually tell by the variant allele frequency by next gen. Uh, you need a PCR to tell that. And one of the challenges with that classification was there wasn't an agreed upon assay to say across the board, uh, how do you define this patient as uh, favorable risk, intermediate risk, or adverse risk um, with a VAF of 36%, that corresponds to an allelic ratio that's close to 0.5, actually. Um, you know, one mutant copy for every two wild type. If you do the math, that's about 33%. Um, so it's right on the borderline. So this, this person likely would wind up in the ELN adverse risk group by the 2017 category. Nowadays, we just say everything's intermediate. Um, that being said, that's intermediate using very aggressive treatment paradigms. And you have to be aggressive, th these patients, because these folks can go from well to sick very quickly. They often have rapid doubling times. You don't get to a white blood cell count of 101 um, you know, from nowhere. And these patients can, with very little provocation, double their white count every 24 hours. So they really need to be watched closely. I would initiate this patient on cytoreductive therapy. Typically we give hydroxyurea um, to make sure the white count doesn't rise further. If the dyspnea we think is due to leukostasis, there's great urgency to bring that down because that can impact induction mortality. Um, you need to think about getting a diagnosis quickly and initiating therapy quickly. And we don't wait for the genetic confirmation of a FLT3 ITD to start the patient on say seven and three induction. Once we know they have AML and the patient is fit for induction chemotherapy, uh, we initiate it. And then we send off the genetic studies that we hope will come back in a few days. Now I don't see a PCR here, which is my preferred study at initial diagnosis. And that's because our next gen, at least in our lab takes you know a while to come back and a PCR is faster. So with that, we can know within the seven days that we're giving uh, IV chemotherapy, you know, we start with seven and three, uh, whether the patient has a FLT3 mutation, and then if so, we start a FLT3 inhibitor on day eight. You touched on very important points. I think one particular question I had is, at the time of diagnosis, you always send the PCR for ITD as well as TKD? I yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah, because it's going to drive your choice of drug. Uh, now, actually, that there are two drugs approved for this disease, 
Um, I think it's particularly important. Um, and, and also there was a benefit to giving uh, mitostorin in the FLT3 TKD positive patients. In fact, that was the group that primarily drove the survival benefit on the Ratify study. So I think it is actually important to look for the FLT3 TKD positive patients, even though they don't generally have as sinister an outcome uh, that's also context dependent. Uh, on Ratify, the, the phase three study of mitostorin, uh, the vast majority of the patients who had a FLT3 tyrosine kinase domain mutation, so-called D835 mutations, were actually ELN favorable risk, either core binding factor or NPM1 mutated. And again, generally did not have a FLT3 ITD. It's pretty rare to see those two FLT3 mutations in the same leukemia. You usually see one or the other, though often there's multiple clones of uh, each mutation. Um, so, you know, if you see a NPM1 FLT3 TKD, that patient can do very well with existing therapy, um, but they do even better when you add mitostorin. Um, and importantly, with the, the most recently approved drug for FLT3 mutated AML, uh, quizartinib, that drug's not actually active against FLT3 TKD mutations, and we have no data that it's beneficial in their care. It may be, but it's really not been studied. Um, so we, we don't have a lot of data to say that it's better than using mitostorin in anybody with a FLT3 TKD. I really think mitostorin is the drug of choice in that setting. So yes, I would use a, a PCR to see either FLT3 mutation that can be picked up by that assay. And there's rare mutations in FLT3 that activate the kinase that you won't pick up by, uh, by PCR. We'll get those on next gen. And how much a FLT3 inhibitor uh, adds to the treatment effect is less well established. I think it really does matter per mutation and, and which drug you're using. And especially if there are presence of other mutations such as NPM1 or in this case IDH1 mutation, do you monitor the PCR over the course of the treatment or do you rely on NGS as well given that there are other mutations present in this particular patient? So in a patient with an NPM1 mutation, I think we have good data that we should follow the NPM1 burden. Um, typically in peripheral blood and typically after two courses of intensive chemotherapy, uh, with this recommendation coming from uh, mostly European studies, a well-known study from the UK NCRI um, led by Adam Ivey that was published in the New England Journal, uh, I want to say about 2016 or so, showed that the uh, continued presence of an NPM1 mutation in remission was a strong predictor of relapse on that study. Um, and that was true you know, with in, in the FLT3 ITD positive population or those who were wild type for FLT3. Um, all the patients studied on that uh, report had NPM1 and that's what they looked for. And, and the question is, if you don't have an NPM1 mutation, what should you follow? So that's an evolving field. There's an emerging story for following FLT3 ITD burden, um, which you know you can do that by PCR, but a more sensitive assay is preferred. And even the next-gen sequencing assays probably aren't sensitive enough to define uh, an MRD positive versus MRD negative population. There are more sensitive assays, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to as we talk about um, other trial data that have been recently uh, presented, such as the Morpho study. Um, we did collect uh, MRD data on the Quantum First study. I'm an author on that uh, paper um, and was involved in the trial. Uh, and it was important for that purpose to say, is this something that's predictive of outcome on the study? And indeed it was in both arms. If you were MRD negative by measure of a ultra-sensitive FLT3 ITD allele burden test, which combined a PCR amplification of the juxtamembrane and then sequencing of the products by next-generation sequencing, um, that test uh, was a strong predictor of, 
of uh, survival on that trial uh, when patients were in remission. And also um, we, we looked at it at, uh, prior to transplant and gathered data on that as well. The next question we had is what are the different types of FLT3 inhibitors? We hear a lot about type 1 and type 2 FLT3 inhibitors. Uh, what are those and what is the difference between the two? Yeah, so it has to do with how chemically they inhibit the kinase. And this is true for uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors in general. Um, you may recall, if you if you think back to imatinib versus desatinib, uh, imatinib is a type 2 inhibitor of BCR-ABL, whereas desatinib is a type 1 inhibitor. Um, we think of some of the weaknesses of imatinib in terms of the likelihood of developing resistance mutations in CML because the binding of imatinib to its target uh, can be easily you know, weakened by very minor variations in uh, the, the binding region on the BCR-ABLE protein. Um, and that's true you know, in terms of a weakness of type 2 inhibitors of FLT3 as well. Um, at, a, at a chemical level, we're talking about the difference between binding a, an active versus an inactive conformation. Um, you know, the type one inhibitors can bind both. Uh, the type two inhibitors only bind when the kinase is inactive. Um, and so an activating mutation at the catalytic domain of FLT3 will render a type two inhibitor insensitive. Um, the, the kinase turns back on, the leukemia continues to grow. Um, and the examples of this include quizartinib, which is a type two inhibitor and is only active against FLT3 ITD, but not those activating mutations in the tyrosine kinase domain, such as the TKD mutation. It's also true for serafinib, which was commonly used as a FLT3 inhibitor prior to uh, the approval of quizartinib, which is you know brand new. So we certainly have a long history of using serafinib. It's never been an approved therapy for AML, but it's it's relatively commonly been used off-label. Um, and it is active in that disease. And there's a long history of using it, particularly in the context of transplant and post-transplant maintenance. You mentioned briefly, uh, but we want to come back to the Ratify study, um, CalGB 10.10603, where mitostorm yep. was added to 7 and 3 induction and consolidation therapy compared with placebo for FLT3-positive AML, including patients with FLT3-ITD high, ITD low, and FLT3-TKD. Um, complete remission rate at treatment day 60 occurred in 59% in the mitostorin arm and 54% in the placebo arm. And the median overall survival uh, was 74.7 months in the mitostorin arm and just 25.6 months in the placebo arm. So how do you determine in whom to add a FLT3 inhibitor? Does everyone with a FLT3 mutation um, receive a FLT3 inhibitor? So let's be clear, this is intensive chemotherapy of patients under the age of 60. That's who was treated on the Ratify study. Um, and when they designed the study, they, they set an endpoint that required a complete remission be declared by day 60. In reality, that was probably too early because there were patients who needed two cycles of chemotherapy and the count recovery on the second cycle could happen after day 60 and you wouldn't capture that. So if we look at everybody on that study, the CR rate, again, with full count recovery was, was closer to 70% in the mitostorin arm. It wasn't a lot higher than the placebo arm, but it was actually higher. I, I wanna say, you know, the placebo was, I think about 61, 62%. Um, so it was better, although not hugely better. The median overall survival looks much, much longer with mitostorin, but then if you look at the survival curves, um, they they basically flattened out at about just over 50%. So it, it makes this big artifact that makes the median survival look much better with mitostorin. Uh, and so most people in the field look at the four-year survival that was reported, which was 51% in mitostorin, 
uh, uh, sorry, 51 in Mitostorin versus I believe 44 in the placebo arm. So about a 7% absolute increase in overall survival. And the hazard ratio was 0.78, meaning there's a 22% a reduction in the risk of death. So it's better. It's not hugely better, but it's better. And the big question is, does that add toxicity? Is there an important downside to mitostorin? And there really wasn't. Um, so th to answer your question, if somebody is fit for induction chemotherapy, um, we're going to treat them intensively with seven and three. I think we have convincing data from CALGB10603 or RATIFY that mitostorin improves the survival of patients who have a FLT3 ITD or TKD by PCR. Um, so that has become the standard of care worldwide and has been, you know, since mitostorin was approved in 2017. And the only data to really challenge that in terms of what we should do uh, frontline have come from the Quantum First study that was, you know, just reported about a year ago and published in the past few months, um, which showed, you know, very similar findings in a FLT3 ITD only group that went above age 60, actually up to age 75. But again, patients who were fit for intensive chemotherapy. And these studies are not defining, you know, what should we do for everybody? They're only defining what should we do for people who have these particular mutations and are fit for the intensive chemotherapy. And there are some differences in these two studies in terms of their design, not just the age of patients that were included. Uh, again, RATIFY allowed TKD mutations and ITD mutations, type one inhibitor that's active against both. Quantum First is a study that only allowed patients with FLT3 ITD because that is, you know, the drug is only active in that group. Um, and a big difference on this was how the uh, the maintenance was set up on the study. The, the maintenance was much longer on quantum first and was allowed in people who went to transplant. They didn't have to leave the study to go to transplant. So the mitostorm was added for 14 days on each course of chemotherapy on ratify. So that was true of up to two cycles of induction, four cycles of consolidation with high dose RSC, and then a year of maintenance um, versus a year of placebo maintenance in the other arm. There was no crossover on either of these studies. In quantum first, uh, same design in terms of 14 days of tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, given on up to two cycles of induction, up to four cycles of consolidation. But if patients went to transplant, they didn't go off study. And so if patients went to transplant on quantum first, they could return to uh, post-transplant uh, maintenance therapy um, and receive that for up to three years. If they didn't go to transplant when they were finished with consolidation, again, up to four cycles, whatever the investigator thought was most appropriate, uh, they could receive the maintenance therapy then and there. So there was a good adherence to the protocol uh, assigned therapy, which was much longer in quantum first. Um, and, and also we have the transplant data. We don't have any post-transplant maintenance uh, data from Ratify because that was not commonly done when that study was enrolling. Um, and so, you know, that is one important difference between these two data sets. One question, Dr. Pearl, is do you think that the donor robustin dosage matters in treating FIT3 positive patients? Ratify trial used 60 milligrams per meter square, but do you think 90 is better than 60? Yeah, I don't actually know the answer to that because it's never been studied. I think in the pre-TKI era, there are you know multiple studies that have shown that a dose of 90 milligrams per meter squared of donorubicin beats lower doses. And even one study that showed it was better than uh, idorubicin in the FLT3 ITD positive group. Um, so a UK study showed that, a US study showed that, and a Korean study showed that. 
um, all, all with very consistent data. This was challenged recently by a German study that showed no benefit of 90 milligrams per meter squared over 60. Again, none of those studies used FLT3 inhibitors. So now that we're not giving just chemotherapy, but we're giving a FLT3 inhibitor, nobody really knows the answer. What I can say is that 90 milligrams per meter squared of donorubicin plus a FLT3 inhibitor is safe, and that's been done on uh, actually two studies, a study of crinolinib, a drug we haven't mentioned so far, and a study of uh, gilteritinib, uh, which is a, a, a FLT3 inhibitor that's approved in relapsed and refractory patients, a type one inhibitor. Um, and so there have been studies using as high as 90 milligrams per meter squared with FLT3 inhibitors, and it's, it's tolerable. We just don't know if it's better. Um, I think, you know, if you weren't using a FLT3 inhibitor, I would argue, you know, more intensification of anthracycline is important. But now that we do, it's it's less clear. And, and as we come up with combination regimens, avoiding toxicity, particularly myelosuppression is important. We don't know that there's more cardiotoxicity with this approach. I think that's been the big concern with higher dose of anthracyclines, but actually it hasn't really played out that way in the clinic. So at the end of the day, the answer is, gee, we don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to see how this all plays out. Another um, point I wanted to ask you about is that um, I think the ratified trial excluded patients with a ratio of less than 0.05. Um, do you include those, do you give those patients a FLT3 inhibitor? I don't know if it benefits them. I mean, we don't know from uh, studies whether these patients should be lumped together. Um, it probably doesn't harm them, but we just don't know a lot about that. It really just comes down to the question of, you know, what else are you doing? Uh, if, if you follow these patients, it's actually not uncommon that if they do relapse, they have a FLT3 mutation if they didn't get treated with a TKI frontline. And, and I think this, this whole question of allele burden is a little bit tricky because, you know, a FLT3 ITD is very specific for a leukemic clone. It's not, you know, clonal hematopoiesis. It's not a chip clone. It's a late hit in leukemogenesis. Um, and that's different than even a FLT3 TKD. You can spot low levels of FLT3 ITD and be pretty confident those are leukemia rather than, you know, sig uh, sequencing noise which is true for point mutations as you know, all of the FLT3 TKDs are point mutations. Um, they're not insertions of specific sequence, which is what we see with an ITD. And so we can be very confident that an ITD read really is leukemia. So, you know, if people have really low burden, I, what we don't know is, is FLT3 ITD a driver in their leukemia if it's a minor clone? And I suspect those are the patients that have generally more favorable and chemosensitive disease. When FLT3 ITD is in the major clone of the leukemia, those tend to be the bad actors. So I don't think it's wrong to add a FLT3 inhibitor in that setting. I just don't think we know whether it's better. You briefly mentioned about quantum first trial uh, where they included patients up till 75. Um, although um, the caveat is this study was started uh, much before Venetoclax plus azacitin was approved. Um, right now, if a patient between 60 and 75 presents to the clinic, probably you will go ahead and start azaven versus giving them an intensive therapy. Do I think that depends. If somebody walks in looking like this other patient with a white count of 101,000 and they're dysmic and they're very sick, and I'm worried I can't cytoreduce them with hydroxyurea, I might give them intensive chemotherapy if I think they are able to tolerate it. Um, I don't hold back when I think the patient is fit enough to receive the therapy. If someone's truly unfit, it, it's not going to benefit them. And we use any way that we can to cytoreduce them, usually with other chemotherapy before starting azovan. But we do, we do generally make a fitness determination before starting therapy. And I, I think we can't say what the right therapy is for older patients because to date, there has not been a study 
Um, in the older population where seven and three and uh, a FLT3 inhibitor um, beat a comparator, there's no randomized data that says that clearly it's better to give a FLT3 inhibitor. We can look at the quantum first data and say, you know, the study overall included patients up to age 75 and it showed a survival benefit that's real, um, you know, in the FLT3 ITD positive population um, that was studied. But if we look at the subgroup analysis, the, the survival benefit was almost exclusively driven by the outcome in the younger patients. And the outcome in the older patients actually looked like the induction mortality might be higher, that there wasn't a big improvement in survival. I think the hazard ratio was like 0.9 something. Um, so it, it's, it's a little bit of a question of were patients who weren't really fit for induction put on that study, or is this just a really hard population to show a survival benefit and a FLT3 inhibitor can do all it can do, but it doesn't improve outcome. And maybe it's a quizartinib thing and a different FLT3 inhibitor would do differently, but we haven't proven that adding a FLT3 inhibitor is better. Now, do I do it? Sure, I do it. I do add mitostorin, or I could use quizartinib now that it's approved in this population, um, but I do it very cautiously, you know, knowing if, if if I'm pretty confident this person can withstand the rigors of intensive chemotherapy, that I just want to give them the best regimen so they don't wind up with resistant leukemia at the end of the day, and they're not harmed by the therapy. Um, if I want to get that patient to transplant, which is often my goal, I, I don't want to get them, you know, through induction, have them come to see me in the clinic in a wheelchair. I need to have them well enough that I can take them, you know, very soon thereafter to a transplant if that's going to be definitive therapy. And that's often how we're looking. The, the advantage for me is that, you know, a round of intensive chemotherapy is a good test run for a transplant. Um, but whether we do that during induction or post remission, you know, hasn't been proven which one's better. So I don't think it's wrong in any way to use azavent in somebody who's borderline or clearly unfit. And if they get better on that therapy, look at intensive therapy thereafter. Yeah, that's really a helpful way to think about that that middle group of, of patients who aren't clearly uh, fit or unfit right from the get-go. There are two um, kind of elements of the quantum first trial design that you mentioned that I want to ask you about. Sure. The control arm and the maintenance or, uh, you know, approach to maintenance. Control arm in terms of you mentioned serafinib. Um, obviously, we've talked about uh, mitostorin. Um, and then I think you mentioned that that, that wasn't crossover for the control arm in quantum first study. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on, on how you thought about that and when you were designing the trial. And then in terms of maintenance, you mentioned that there's a different length of, of maintenance in the, in the ratify and, and quantum first trials. And obviously we hope that um, we're curing people of AML. And so I wanted your thoughts generally about maintenance in the curative setting and then, you know, how long is a piece of string? How long should we give maintenance for? Yeah, um, for the first time, a FLT3 inhibitor has been approved for maintenance therapy. Uh, quizartinib is approved as post-chemotherapy maintenance. It wasn't actually approved as post-transplant maintenance. Um, and that's a change in the treatment paradigm. So if you're using quizartinib uh, for definitive therapy, uh, as was done on quantum first in a good number of the patients, not everyone went to transplant. Um, two things I would point out uh, are that the survival of patients who went to transplant was better than the non-transplanted patients. But if we looked at the non-transplanted patients, quizartinib was better than placebo in that group as well. And, and we can't say where that benefit comes from. Is it just you know from induction? Is it consolidation? Is it maintenance? We, we didn't have subsequent randomizations to say we would have needed a much larger study to really definitively answer that question. You know, Double factorial design, something like that requires a really big study. Um, and Quantum First screened over 3,000 patients to find the study group. 
but it only randomized about, I want to say 539 or so patients uh, at, at the end of the day. So we just don't have that many data points. Um, that being said, I'm happy to have the drug in that context. And the question is going to be, are people going to use it exactly as it was done in the study, or are they going to mix and match, use it as post-transplant maintenance, use, you know, switch to maintenance sooner or not use maintenance at all? Um, because we don't have a definitive study saying maintenance is beneficial, we really don't know, but it also was tolerable, which is helpful. The thing to know about quisartinib though, is if you're gonna use it, you really gotta pay attention to the dose and concomitant medications because it's a drug that's known to prolong QT. You really shouldn't be using it in patients who have baseline QT prolongation. And if you are using it, that's a dose dependent phenomenon and the drug levels are predictive of the degree of QT prolongation. And you have to adjust the dose based on concomitant medications, notably azole antifungals. Uh, those tend to increase drug exposures and they are associated with longer count recovery, um, which we generally saw on quantum first is that it took longer for patients in the quisartinib arm to recover their counts from induction by about a week. So while you know, we, we think that that's not associated with a detriment in long-term outcome. There was a higher rate of infections during induction on the study. There was a somewhat higher induction mortality. Again, that may largely have been driven by the older patients, um, but you really got to pay attention to that. And the dose and maintenance is different than the dose used uh, in combination chemotherapy. So, uh, and then the approved dose is, is also different from what was used on the publication. So that's the last part about this you have to pay attention to. Um, they, they use the free base of the drug rather than the, the hydrochloride salt um, to come up with the dosing of quasarium. So, so it's a little bit confusing. Um, but on the study, how it was done, we used 40 milligrams in induction and consolidation. We used 60 milligrams in uh, maintenance therapy. And in anybody taking a, you know, a, a strong CYP3A4 inhibitor like voriconazole or posiconazole, the dose of quasartinib was cut in half. So right now, if a patient who is um, intensive therapy candidate, do you choose quasartinib or mitostorin? Um, I certainly you know, want to look at giving the best therapy from day one to a patient who is eligible for you know, what I think has the best outcome data, which in younger patients, I think, uh, to my eyes, the data are pretty clear that quasartinib should be the, the drug of choice. Why do I say that based on no randomized data, quasartinib versus mitostorin? Um, I think if we look at the preponderance of the data, um, it's not driven by CR rates because they weren't all that different on the studies. Um, and we're using the same definition. But what we do see is once patients go into remission, there seems to be better protection from relapse. And whether that is a function of, you know, people going to transplant, post-transplant maintenance, or the drug itself is a little bit clear because practice patterns changed. But what I can say is that if we look at the, the hazard ratio for survival on Ratify for the FLT3 ITD positive group, it was about 0.8 regardless of the allele burden of FLT3 ITD. Um, it was 0.68 in quasartinib. And if we look at the overall survival of comparably aged patients, um, again, the, the overall survival of four years on Ratify was about 51% for both the FLT3 ITD and TKD positive patients. Um, and it's closer to 60% for ITD only if you look at the under age 60 on quantum first. So yeah, again, big grain of salt comparing studies uh, in this setting, but at least the preponderance of the data say to me, this looks like a better drug. Um, and it also has single agent activity. It's a more potent PLT3 inhibitor. I think that I can feel more comfortable saying we're really getting the job done with quasartinib, 
Um, in particular for the question of maintenance, I, I really don't know that there's a lot of benefit to mitostorin maintenance, and there may be benefit to the quasartin of maintenance. Um, ironically, I do think there actually is, is likely a benefit to the post-transplant maintenance, though the FDA didn't approve it for that indication. And, and we know that actually better from the, the Morpho study, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. I want to ask about one more study. Uh, although we have, you know, uh, two trials which are positive, but we also had one negative trial, phase three trial, which is giltertinib plus azacitrine versus azacitrine alone in intensive therapy in eligible patients. So I wanted to know your thoughts on the trial. I think even though the CR rates were significantly higher, 58% in the uh, giltertinib plus azacitrine arm versus 26% in azacitrine alone. But that did not translate to the overall survival. Overall survival is essentially the same. Yeah, we were all disappointed by this result, I have to say. Um, I used to uh, present this uh, uh, study uh, uh, that was led by my, my, my good friend Eunice Wang, and I, I would put up a slide of, you know, Charlie Brown getting the football pulled out from under him and, and at her... At her egging, I have taken that out of my slide deck because I, I feel bad that, you know, she has to present the data, um, you know, and, and make this reference every time. Um, but we, we were all really hoping for something very different from uh, the, the lace wing study is the name of the study, uh, comparing azocytidine to azocytidine plus gilteritinib. Um, I would point out there are some some discrepancies in terms of, you know, how we'd like the data to turn out that may be driven by how the study was just designed. Um, it's not a placebo-controlled trial. So patients knew what arm they were on because they were either receiving AZA alone or AZA plus gilteritinib, and that was open label. Um, gilteritinib was approved while the study was enrolling. And so if patients weren't happy with what they were receiving, they could drop off study, get gilteritinib and get azacitidine, and they often did. And so in that setting, I'm not that surprised that the survivals looked very similar across the the, the two arms because there was a, a significant number of dropout uh, from the study to get FLT3 inhibitor. Now, that being said, you know, the event-free survival on the study is the same. The overall survival isn't as long as we would like. Um, I don't think this is a home run. Um, but if we look at some of the higher risk patients, those that had high allele burden of FLT3 ITD, it does suggest that there, there may be a benefit of the AZA plus guilt regimen. Um, and I think that's a question of how driven by FLT3 are these leukemias, which can vary from patient to patient. And also the fact that, you know, it's, it's hard to have a patient with proliferative disease treated with azacitidine alone. It's not at all surprising that the duration of azacitidine in the control arm was short because I don't think that's very good therapy for those patients. And it probably led to uh, physicians steering patients with less aggressive disease to this trial because they knew if they got assigned to the azacitidine only arm, they really couldn't treat them with that. So, you know, it's not really representative of what we see in the clinic where we often have these patients with really explosive disease that's so characteristic of the FLT3 mutated uh, cohort. So whether this is representative of what, you know, what's best for this population, I really can't say. Um, I am heartened by the fact that we do have active therapy in this setting, and I don't think AZA plus guilt is bad treatment. I, I have used that or a similar regimen in many of my patients, uh, again, particularly those who have high white count when they present, if we can knock that down with a therapy, any therapy, and a FLT3 inhibitor is quite good at that, um, then we can look at other treatments down the road, or if that's tolerable, we just continue it. I've also switched people to azagilt if they've had trouble from cytopenias from, say, venetoclax azacitidine. That allows me to keep the azacitidine going longer 
and add a TKI if, for example, they still are testing positive for FLT3ITD. Um, commonly, these patients have short remission durations from azaven, even though the remission rate is actually pretty good. It's about 70% with azacitidine venetoclax. And then that brings up the whole question of triplets. Um, so so that's like the the you know the hottest thing right now is you know put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> if two drugs are good, three drugs must be better. But the simple answer is you know the the response rates are extremely high. They're every bit as high, if not potentially higher, than intensive chemotherapy plus a FLT3 inhibitor, which I think brings up some really interesting questions. You know if if this is you know, if this is hard therapy for older patients because it is myelosuppressive, and it is, um, then, you know, what about myelosuppressive therapies for younger fit patients? We now have ways that we can measure these treatments with MRD to say, you know, if we're getting comparable remission rates, but we're getting deeper remissions with one than the other, that might be a good way to compare these two therapies. Um, and while we're largely testing these triplets, the azacitidine venetoclax approach with gilteritinib, um, in older unfit patients, I don't think it's outrageous to say, you know, we really should be moving that therapy into younger or more fit patients if it is just as active and might be more tolerable, because I think that's a win for the patients. Um, and we don't know. I mean, it could be no different in tolerability and it could be no better in efficacy, but I think we will need to do a randomized study to clarify that. Um, and probably, you know, the, the, community is going to need to see really from multi-center studies, how does Azaven plus GIL play out in the older population? Those studies are ongoing right now. Um, we're participating in a multi-center trial of uh, that triplet uh, called Viceroy. Um, so that's currently enrolling at my site and a bunch of others. All right. So now we'll move to relapse refractory three positive AML. So uh, as you know, several agents, including quizartinib, um, giltertinib, and crenolanib, they have promising activity, but only gilt monotherapy has received regulatory approval. And the approval was based on um, the admiral study, which you led and your publication in NEGM 2019. It was a phase three randomized trial evaluating single agent giltertinib compared with investigators' choice for patients ineligible for intensive salvage. Um, so can you give us the top line results of that study? Maybe we can do the efficacy first and safety after that. Sure. Um, so just to clarify the study population, this was first salvage for patients who were either refractory to whatever their treating physician thought was the best induction regimen. We didn't require that that was intensive chemotherapy, but they needed to have been given it in an attempt to go into remission um, or they had relapsed after a prior remission achieved with any therapy, including patients who'd gone on to transplant and had a lot of prior therapy. Um, but it wasn't for relapsed refractory patients who'd had multiple, multiple, multiple lines of prior therapy. It was their first salvage. So we thought that that would select for a group that might have some response to salvage chemotherapy, and that that was the right population to declare whether gilteritinib was as good, better, or not as good um, in a randomized fashion. Um, so the study uh, enrolled, I think, 369 patients and randomized them two to one to either single agent gilteritinib, given at a dose of 120 milligrams um, with allowances to decrease the dose if you had toxicity or increase the dose if you didn't go into remission with that dose. The investigator had to choose the appropriate salvage chemotherapy regimen from a choice of four options, two of which were intensive and two were low intensity before randomization. So you had to just, you know, cast your nickel um, before the patient got randomized and they would be assigned to whatever you picked as what you thought was the best salvage chemotherapy. And that could be low dose cytarabine, it could be azacitidine single agent. This predated the approval of venetoclax, so that wasn't included. Um, on the intensive arm, patients could get a, a, a multi-agent uh, regimen, either flag-ida, um, 
or I believe mech, mech chemotherapy, mitoxantrone and topicide and high do, intermediate dose cytarabine. Um, and the primary endpoint of the study was overall survival, although we collected uh, response data and transfusion independence as well. Again, the study enrolled over the period of like 2016 to 2018 or so, and then uh, it was an event-driven uh, readout uh, when a certain number of patients had uh, had a survival event, um, and that showed that the survival of patients uh, treated on the gilteritinib arm was superior to that on the salvage chemotherapy arm. And when we looked at subgroup analysis, uh, that benefit held up regardless of whether patients were older, younger, had been treated with, would have been treated with intensive chemotherapy as their salvage choice or low intensity therapy. Um, it really held up across pretty much every subgroup we could define. The other thing I should point out is that uh, the drug actually got approved before the survival readout uh, was finalized, um, but the study had completed accrual and was just waiting for that uh, to happen. And the reason why was that the clinical benefit of the drug had already been established, uh, that as a single agent from both its phase one, two study uh, called Chrysalis that I also led, um, and from the gilteritinib arm on uh, the Admiral study, uh, the response rate, including full CRs or CRHs uh, that were associated with adequate count recovery or full count recovery and transfusion independence, um, clearly made a threshold for clinical benefit. Um, and it was uh, approved based on that. About a third of patients developed transfusion independence, even though they'd been transfusion dependent prior to gilteritinib therapy. Um, and the majority of people who were transfusion independent going into study maintained that throughout therapy. Um, and that was over an eight-week period that they didn't need platelet transfusions. Um, so it was fairly stringent. Um, so the drug got approved after uh, both you know, the demonstration of clinical benefit and then the survival data kind of clinched that. And it's now the standard of care for relapsed refractory AML with a FLID3 mutation. And it's important if, if somebody has a relapse that you confirm that the FLID3 mutation is present because that's how we define the study population. You needed to have a FLT3 mutation, a TKD or an ITD at study entry. It didn't matter what you had at initial diagnosis. And indeed some people relapse with a new FLT3 ITD that wasn't there at initial diagnosis. And similarly, if patient had a FLT3 uh, mutation at initial diagnosis, they may not have it at the time of relapse. And we don't think the drug's very active in that population. It, it was studied in the Chrysalis study in patients regardless of genotype and nearly all of the responses occurred in the FLT3 mutated group. So you really should screen for a FLT3 mutation before starting gilteritinib, not just because it's on the label, but because that wouldn't define optimal therapy for the patient. Any major events to monitor while on single-agent gilteritinib, like you know, differentiation syndrome, for example? Can you yeah. read more onto that? And you know, what clinically, how do you manage that? Yeah, that's that's an important question because you know no drug is without side effects. I, I mentioned Gleevec before, and we think of you know the the wonder drug that it was in terms of just being so symptom free relative to established CML therapies. Um, and the same is sort of true of gilteritinib. You know, it's it's a relatively easy drug to give patients. We give it in the outpatient setting. Um, certainly, looking at the difference between you know flagida and gilteritinib, that's a no brainer in terms of toxicity. So it's much 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 less toxic than a comparator chemotherapy like, you know, high-dose RSC-based regimens for salvage. That being said, no drugs without side effects. Um, gilteritinib does cause cytopenias. Gilteritinib commonly causes LFT abnormalities. Um, we often see an elevation of CPK, um, and that's probably not from muscle damage, but it has to do with turnover of CPK um, that relates to uh, signaling from uh, the, the uh, CSF1R receptor, um, which is involved in, in turnover of CPK. 
Often we see elevations of LDH that isn't tumor lysis. So you can see these you know, lab abnormalities that may not be of clinical consequence. You mentioned differentiation syndrome, which we described actually initially with quizartinib, but we think is a class effect of FLT3 inhibitors, particularly when given as single agent. And so we don't see this a lot in combination therapy, but we can see it not uncommonly in patients treated with single agent FLT3 inhibitors that the drug works by clearing the peripheral blast rapidly. And over just a few days, the white count comes you know, crashing on down. But over the next few weeks, we can actually see patients develop kind of vague symptoms that might look inflammatory. Uh, and an increase in the nutri circulating neutrophils typically happens two to eight weeks later. Um, in the context of, you know, often fevers, we can see, you know, pleuropericardial effusions, uh, patient can develop organ dysfunction in the setting and there have been fatal cases. So if you suspect it, we, we recommend uh, treatment with uh, corticosteroids if there are systemic signs and symptoms. And it can also, uh, uh mimic another side effect that we see with flithrine inhibitors, which is a sweet syndrome like rash, which may be associated with fever. And whether that's, you know, just another manifestation of say leukemia cutis that differentiates in the skin, I don't think we can exactly say, but certainly we do see those two toxicities and they can look very similar. For sweets like rashes, I just use topical steroids in most cases, and that's effective, but sometimes can use um, systemic corticosteroids if it's resistant to that. And in terms of others, uh, adverse events, you do need to monitor QT for colteritinib, just like quizartinib. Um, it does interact with azoles that can magnify toxicity, but there's not a mandatory dose reduction for the use of azoles. Uh, now we have more uh, studies regarding combining um, gilteritinib with venetoclax. Um, we have a phase 1b study um, recently published in Journal of Clinical Oncology led by you and Navel Daver at MD Anderson. Um, what is the rationale for combining venetoclax plus gilteritinib? Is just more is better or is there a actual mechanistic? So shout out to Jessica Altman, who's also a, a key in, uh, investigator involved in the design of that study and, and kind of my partner in crime in some of the combination studies. Um, so there was actually a rationale here. I, 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 you mentioned the differentiation that we saw with single agent gilteritinib. Um, what we saw in tracking patients responding to gilteritinib is that they would vary in terms of whether the allele burden of FLT3-ITD would drop. And we had you know, been involved in the development of a quantitative assessment of FLT3-ITD burden that, that led to the in vivo scribe assay that was tested on the Morpho study um, for MRD detection. Um, and what we saw with single agent gilteritinib is there were people who had deep responses to the drug, but it was a relatively small number of patients and they seemed to do better. Their survival was better. And so one of the questions we had is how do we deepen the responses to a FLT3 inhibitor through combination therapy? And obviously the, the, the easy way to do that is just add more intensive chemotherapy, but we were more interested in could we use less toxic therapies that would you know have synergistic interactions. And it was known from preclinical work that venetoclax plus uh, gilteritinib did indeed uh, exert that synergy. Uh, very nice work from Marina Conopleva's lab showing that um, with quizartinib, but it's been shown with other FLT3 inhibitors as well. Um, and so combining gilteritinib with venetoclax, the thought was we would induce apoptosis um, if we would uh, combine these drugs together. And that's indeed what we saw. We almost never see tumor lysis with gilteritinib alone. We did see it in some patients treated with the combination. Again, we saw very rapid drops in the FLT3-ITD burden. And we followed these patients by single cell sequencing um, 
with the uh, Mission Bio Tapestry assay um, and really did see that the FLT3 ITD clones were cleared from the marrow in ways that we didn't typically see um, with gilteritinib alone. Um, so it really does look like we get a qualitatively different kind of response to venetoclax plus gilteritinib as a doublet. Um, and the question that arises is if you add, you know, that to azacitidine plus venetoclax, do you, you know, deepen or prolong those kinds of responses? Um, I think in the relapse and refractory setting, it's probably not necessary, although, you know, certainly there's activity of that regimen. And I think choosing doublet versus triplet in that setting should depend on what you've previously seen. Um, the venetoclax gilteritinib study, uh, majority of the patients enrolled to that study had had prior FLT3 inhibitors and yet responded to that combination. We didn't have a lot of data on prior FLT3 inhibitors from Admiral since so few patients had had prior FLT3 inhibitor. And so I think the activity of it in that setting is important. And if somebody had not had Venaza frontline, um, maybe the triplet would be the best option for them in the salvage setting. Um, but I do think that the, the response and survival data look fairly comparable and it's probably a little less toxic. So doublet is probably just as good. One thing from the uh, guilt plus when data mentioning about the toxicity, uh, almost 97% of the patients had grade three or four um, toxicity and majority were cytopenias. How do you mitigate the myelosuppression when you're treating this combination? Yeah, this this was this was something we learned as we went through the study. The the main way that we uh, dealt with this was we tried to give patients continuous exposure to gilteritinib. And again, this goes back to what we knew from treating relapsed refractory uh, FLT3 mutated AML. Again, from work that Mark Levis had done many years ago with at that time much weaker inhibitors of FLT3 that. If you only partially inhibited FLT3 or inhibited for a few hours of the day, but not round the clock, the leukemia would grow through it. So we really wanted to, in the you know relapse refractory setting, uh, give continuous exposure to a FLT3 inhibitor if at all possible. But we were checking marrows to make sure the patients weren't getting aplastic. And if they were, we would hold these drugs. We would shorten the duration of the venetoclax exposure. It was initially given for 28 days with a up to two week recovery period. We dropped that to 21 and then 14 days on subsequent cycles. So we would decrease the number of days that you gave venetoclax. And that begs the question, just how many days do you need to combine venetoclax and gilteritinib to see that synergy that's there? Um, and the answer is probably not very many. Um, so that's something that we're doing, you know, in the frontline studies is once patients start responding, we try to cut back on the number of days of venetoclax uh, to decrease the myelosuppression because it's very clear that count recovery is delayed when we give the triplet. Um, and you may need only a few days of overlap of these drugs to really see that synergy. And and again, even do you need 14 days of guilt, 28 days of guilt, continuous exposure? Nobody knows in the frontline setting. Uh, this was all worked out in relapse refractory patients, and it may not be true that you need continuous exposure. If you think of Ratify, that that was with a weak FLT3 inhibitor by comparison to gilteritinib or quizartinib. Um, and it was only given for 14 days, and yet it's it's active. And when the same study was done in a FLT3 wild-type population, there was no improvement in survival on that trial, the, the, the UNIFI study. Um, so we really do think it's a FLT3-driven phenomena that we see, um, and short-term FLT3 inhibitor may be perfectly adequate. So there'll be up, upcoming randomized studies looking at different sequences and different regimens of triplet. Uh, we'll be doing that in the myelomatch study uh, through the, through the, uh, the NCI in the future. So let's move to talking about the MORPHO trial, uh, randomized uh, comparison of maintenance gilteritinib to placebo over two years following transplant in 356 patients with FLT3 ITD mutated AML. 
The study failed to reach its primary endpoint of relapse-free survival, but there was a suggestion that patients treated with um, gilteridinib achieved a numerical but not statistically significant improvement in RFS with the p-value as 0.0518. So could you run us through some of the key takeaways from the MORPHO trial? Yeah, we needed a bigger study. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, everybody looked at that and said, you know, uh, 0 0.051, is that close enough or not? Yeah, I mean, the statisticians said it has to be less than 0 0.05, and we were not. So overall, we could not show that there was a significant improvement in relapse-free survival, which was our primary endpoint. And the reason we chose that endpoint was, uh, again, the same issue that came up on, on Lacewing that we thought with active... Uh, salvage therapy for the placebo group, we would not necessarily see an overall survival benefit, and we didn't. Um, so I think that's the reason why there wasn't an overall survival group is that the the, the control arm that got placebo likely got effective salvage um, because they were pulled off study to get it when they either had a, rel a relapse or they were found to have recurrence of MRD or something like that. So we could not show an overall survival benefit with our study design. Uh, in terms of the relapse-free survival, though, it, it actually showed very much what we expected it to show, um, which was the benefit of FLT3 inhibitor maintenance therapy was largely limited to patients who had had suboptimal control of their leukemia, either prior to transplant or early evidence of relapse after transplant, um, as measured by an ultra-sensitive FLT3 ITD test. So this uh, PCR-NGS FLT3 MRD that was used on the study um, it's a very sensitive assay. It's much, much more sensitive than PCR, traditional NGS, really any other MRD assay that has been looked at in this disease. Um, and we looked at it prior to transplant, which is different than all of the FLT3 inhibitor studies that were looked at in the serafinib world, in the uh, mitostorin world, where they really didn't have those kinds of discrimination prior to transplant. And then we looked at it serially after transplant at the time of randomization and every three months for the two years of maintenance that we provided thereafter. And so we got a serial MRD uh, assessment on these patients at multiple time points. And what we found is that if patients at either the pre-transplant or the first post-transplant pre-randomization sample were MRD detectable at any level, down to 10 to the minus sixth, uh, they had a worse survival and their survival was better if they were on the gilteritinib arm. If they didn't have detectable FLT3 ITD, there was no benefit of the drug. And so that you know clarifies that transplant does cure a good number of patients with FLT3 ITD, but if you have not had an optimal response going into transplant, or if right after transplant, you convert from MRD negative to MRD positive, uh, you need more therapy. And more therapy does improve their outcome in terms of protection from relapse. And that was an important endpoint on the study. There, there was an interesting analysis on this that, that has not caught a lot of attention, which is if you only looked at the patients that were MRD positive post-transplant, which is about 20% of the patients, um, and that included a certain number of patients who were MRD negative pre-transplant and converted afterwards. That was, you know, of the 20%, 5% of those, you know, about a quarter of them were, were actually newly MRD positive. The clearance of that MRD um, was better in the gilteritinib arm than in the placebo arm, but there were, you know, 40% of the patients in the placebo arm who did clear it. So there's a graft versus leukemic effect. And I think what gilteritinib really does is it holds the leukemia stable during the time that's needed for that GVL to kick in. And it probably takes several months for that to happen, you know, to get the patient off immunosuppression, to get the donor cells well engrafted and active and seeing leukemia. 
Um, and because that takes time and typically FLT3 ITD positive AML relapses quickly after transplant, that's why you know no maintenance is associated with worse protection against relapse because those will happen very early on. We didn't see re late relapses on this study. And even after the two years of therapy, we didn't see a big you know increase at that point of relapses when we withdrew gilteritinib. Uh, but we could actually go back and look and say in the people who relapsed right after stopping their gilteritinib, was MRD detectable? And, and often it was. So if you are going to withhold maintenance therapy after transplant, I think it behooves you to monitor for the presence of FLT3 ITD post-transplant. Um, so it's not just a question of looking once pre-transplant. I think you know our onus is to monitor these patients closely because we can intervene. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily wait for a clinical relapse in those patients because of what I said before, that if we treat, we may not need to give lifelong therapy. And we don't know how long to treat with gilteritinib once we see response in anyone who's relapsed. The goal here should not be to give continuous therapy for years and years and years and years and years. We gave two years of therapy on morpho, and we did see certain side effects more commonly in the gilteritinib arm, a slightly higher rate of GVHD chronic graft-versus-host disease, and a higher rate of infections. And again, that could have translated into some of the mortality uh, uh, data that we saw where we couldn't show a survival benefit in terms of overall survival for the gilteritinib population. Some of that could have come from adverse events. Yeah, it's an interesting way of thinking about it, like a bridge not just to transplant, but a bridge to GVL and having the yeah. time for the GVL to kick in. That's exactly how I think of it, yeah. Do you think the use of azoles affected the morpho study at all? Oh, it clearly affected the drug levels. Um, and use of azoles was actually location uh, driven. So, so it's mu much more common outside of North America that people not only used azoles, but use them for a prolonged period of time. And we measured the drug exposures uh, in terms of pharmacokinetics of gilteritin. They were drug levels, really therapeutic drug monitoring. And the drug levels were higher in patients who had used azoles and particularly high in patients who used strong CYP3A inhibitors, um, such as, you know, posiconazole, voriconazole, um, and less notable in patients who had had uh, fluconazole or isoviconazole. That was associated with greater degrees of myelosuppression. It was also associated with people withholding their study drug trying to resolve the myelosuppression. And the worry is that that might've contributed to relapse risk. So it was interesting to see that the relapse rates were different um, across different parts of the world in terms of the enrollment of the study. And the benefit of the drug was actually different depending on where you looked at it. In North America, there was a substantial benefit of gilteritinib uh, post-transplant, but we really saw no benefit at all. The Asian countries that enrolled are Australia, Pacific Islands. Um, we saw, if anything, the gilteritinib-treated patients did a little bit worse in Europe. Um, so where patients enrolled was a significant determinant of how they did. Um, and we think at least some of that has to do with, are the patients really the same? And they probably weren't the same. They'd had a lot more prior therapy going into transplant on average, an additional cycle and an additional month of time from uh, documentation of remission outside of North America. Um, so it may have been that the benefit of the transplant is different if, for example, the really FLT3-driven patients who relapse early um, have been weeded out by the time of study enrollment by just waiting long enough. And that may have led to relatively lower risk patients um, outside of uh, North America. If we look at the control arm, the survival of the control arm was much better outside of North America than in North American sites. And I suspect that's the reason why. Yeah, it's very interesting when you try and sort of patch together um, results from different parts of the world like that, because practice, practice can it, be it, so- It was so very eye-opening. Yeah, no, no two places practice transplant the same is what we learned. 
I want to ask, obviously we've talked a lot about quisartinib and mitostorin in induction. Obviously you also mentioned serafinib as being previously used in maintenance and now we have gilteritinib in maintenance. So do you, you sort of, we talked about well, before about- I wouldn't say we have, there's no label for it yet. It's commonly used, but just like serafinib is commonly used, this is off label. Um, the only time really it's really on label is if you bridge to a transplant in the salvage setting. And, and there, I, I really think it's very important to put the patient back on maintenance after the transplant. And, and we don't know the optimal duration. I, I think our experience from Admiral and from Chrysalis was um, before Chrysalis, the phase one, two study of gilteritinib was amended to allow post-transplant maintenance, we had no option. And so we pulled people off study and give them serafinib maintenance because we were worried that they would relapse. And if they didn't get maintenance, we often saw those relapses within two months of the transplant. So, you know, very, very quickly patients would relapse. So if you use a FLT3 inhibitor to bridge to a transplant, you really should look to put the patient back on a FLT3 inhibitor. And that's a different population from morpho, which was a much lower risk population. I would not expect, you know, 80% survival from CR2 transplants done with guilt salvage. We, we saw much lower numbers than that, although not terrible, more like 50% survival, but better survival in the patients who got maintenance than those who didn't with the caveats that they're not randomized and they could, again, be different patients. I wanted to ask, if you start on one FLT3 inhibitor, do you stick with the same FLT3 inhibitor if you are going to use it for maintenance or for, 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 as a bridge to transplant, or do you swap depending on the data set that you're using? Well, I haven't. I mean, I've been using mitostorin since it became available, um, but I've not used mitostorin post-transplant maintenance because I think it's not very tolerable and it hasn't really shown a lot of activity. Um, I think serafinib data were more impressive, quite honestly. Uh, it's not to say it wasn't studied. It was studied in a study called um, RADIUS. Um, it did have some activity. It was just less impressive. It's an open label study, relatively small numbers, 30 in each arm. But you know, even the 40 patients in each arm from the SOAR main study showed a really impressive protection from relapse um, on that trial that I think convinced most everybody that serafinib was an active agent for post-transplant maintenance and really should be our default. Um, this led to a lot of consternation about whether it was ethical to do the morpho study um, at all. And, you know, I think we pretty clearly showed that there is a subgroup that benefits and there's a subgroup that really doesn't. Um, so at the end of the day, given about half the patients can't tolerate serafinib because of side effects, I, I don't think we harmed patients by doing a placebo controlled trial. Um, to get back to changing horses in midstream, yes, I, I traditionally had used um, mitostorin uh, with induction and consolidation. And, you know, when patients would go to transplant, I would give them serafinib. When gilteritinib became available, um, if we could get it from insurance, we would give it after transplant. And, and often I was able to get it and still am. Um, we'll see whether that changes now that Morpho is present, uh, presented. But, you know, I also don't know what the company is going to do with these data. I mean, they were hoping this would be a registration study um, and they're left with a p-value that's 0.051. So, you know, We'll see what happens. Thank you so much, Dr. Bill. Um, We talked about a lot of clinical trials and thank you so much for walking us through the entire uh, landscape of FLT3-positive AML. Any exciting clinical trials in neurodiagnose or elapsed refractory space you're eagerly awaiting results for? Yeah, there, there's a few that have uh, either completed enrollment or are just about to complete enrollment um, that are frontline randomized studies. And, and I mentioned that the quantum first study 
you know, one weakness of that study was it, it enrolled right around the time that mitostorin became available and it had been designed with a placebo arm as the control. And it's been criticized roundly for that reason. But in reality, there was no way to feasibly do a mitostorin control arm. We wanted to, but just there was no way to do it. Um, it was a global study. Mitostorin was only available in the US. Most of the places that we thought would enroll to the study had no access. And the sponsor was not going to go, you know, buy mitostorin and then have two INDs on the same trial. So there was no way that was going to happen. Um, so now there actually are studies that have a mitostorin control arm that have either completed enrollment or are about to complete enrollment. These are uh, a study in the U.S. done through Precog called Pre-0905, um, and then a study done by two cooperative groups in Europe, the uh, Hovon uh, Dutch uh, cooperative group and the AMLSG in Germany. Uh, that study is called Pasha, or Hovon 156, and, and they have a very similar design from the get-go. They're comparing 7 and 3 plus gilteritinib versus 7 and 3 plus mitostorin. The post-remission therapy is a little bit different, and you know, the Pasha study is, is powered to detect um, event-free survival as their primary endpoint as a, as a planned registration study for frontline gilteritinib. Um, whereas the precog study is looking at molecular endpoints, and again, we'll we'll learn a lot about MRD with this approach, um, and see whether you know with a more potent and uh, kind of newer FLT3 inhibitor that gilteritinib is, are we going to get deeper remissions with uh, adding that drug to seven and three, or is it going to be that there's really no difference? Um, in the outcomes, because they're both type one inhibitors, they do what they're going to do. The patients who respond are the patients who respond. And, you know, we can substitute one drug for another, but it's not the same as the relapse refractory setting where, you know, you really are leaning on the merits of the drug itself um, to do all the heavy lifting and not to modulate a chemotherapy response, which probably is what FLT3 inhibition does in frontline setting. So those will be very interesting data, I think, when they read out. And we still are probably at least a year away from the readout from the precog study and several years to read out on the PASHA study, um, just because that that trial you know, just is completing accrual now. Um, so it'll probably be a couple of years before we get the, the word on that. There's the uh, the MyeloMatch program that the NCI is uh, putting together that is looking to optimize uh, therapy with a molecular algorithm. In some ways, that's similar to what BDAML is doing. And I know BDAML has had some arms that included uh, FLT3 inhibitors. I believe there's a triplet uh, study they're looking at also. Um, and again, that's multi-center, unlike uh, just single center data, which is all we have right now from MD Anderson. Lastly, there's some new drugs coming down the pike um, and we'll see, you know, are these going to be the wave of the future or are we kind of going to work with the drugs that we have now? Um, there's a covalent inhibitor that Fujifilm came up with um, called FF10101. Uh, we did a phase one, 1B study of that. Um, there's a second covalent inhibitor by Omea is just getting going in trials. Uh, Aptos has an inhibitor. A bunch of companies have inhibitors. Um, all of these are pretty early stage, though. None of these has gotten to the point of, you know, adding it to chemotherapy. The only drug that's really done that in terms of new drugs we haven't talked a lot about um, is crinolinib, which really, you know, I think is a is is a player. The challenge with that is we we don't know whether that study is going to continue. They have a phase three study that's been slow to accrue, and I think the the sponsor is, you know, kind of make a decision: are they going to try to see that to uh, completion, uh, expand to more sites, expand to Europe or what, or is that development over? Um, I'm hopeful, uh, you know, that we get an answer off of that study because I think that's a good drug. Um, it's, it looks active and it looked, had very promising data from phase one, two setting. 
um, in combination with frontline intensive chemotherapy. So I'd, I'd love to see the final answer on that. And I'm kind of hopeful that we'll, we'll get that from that trial, but we have to wait and see. Um, but that's kind of where we are in the flip three world as of, you know, fall of 2023. It's, it's an exciting space. There's a lot of, uh, you know, cool developments that are going forward. Again, the, the triplets are really exciting, both in uh, older unfit patients, but I hope soon in younger, more fit patients. Um, we will hopefully optimize frontline intensive therapy. We're better defining how to uh, use FLT3 inhibitors pre-transplant, post-transplant. We have not eliminated transplant from the armamentarium here because it really does improve survival. Um, and what I hope is as we do more MRD, we can better describe who are the patients who really need it. Uh, if you achieve an MRD negative state early in therapy, do you really need a transplant or should we wait on those patients, give them consolidation with FLT3 inhibitor and monitor them closely? And if they do happen to relapse, take them to a transplant CR2. I'm not comfortable doing that just yet, but I think ultimately those are the kind of questions we need to ask and gather data on so we can better inform therapy. And hopefully we don't need transplant in every patient just because they're eligible. Thanks a lot, Dr. Pearl, for your time. And uh, we look forward to having you again once we have these results of this, some of the trials you briefly mentioned about in the future. Thanks so much for this invitation. This was fun today. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. Thanks, Dr. Pearl.